You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning, Red Tree. It is good to be with you all today. It's so good to be with you all today. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Hope everyone had tons of time with good food, good family. But it's good to be here. It's good to be here sitting under the authority of Scripture. It's good to sing God's praises. It's good to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's good to be here. It's good to come and take communion when we release you. And it's good. Today's a good day. This morning, we're going to be building a little bit on what Mike Bird talked about last week. I hope you were able to listen to that or be here last, last week. It was an amazing time. Mike went through the, the parable, or sorry, not the parable, the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree, and he challenged us to bear much fruit. He challenged us to evaluate ourselves whether or not we are producing the fruit of the gospel and told us that if things were not producing the fruit of the gospel, there's something wrong. And I thought that was a really good thing. I really enjoyed listening to Mike and his heart. There was only one problem. I sat in that seat last week thinking, I have to follow this guy? I mean, he was dynamic. He was over here, over there, in the aisles. And then I didn't realize this about Red Tree, but we can like agree with a pastor a lot. I mean, you guys were responsive. It was really cool. Oh, for real. When I was assigned my text this week, I drew a long blank. I was, I was panicking. I was full of nerves and fear, because I was reading the story of the wicked tenants, and I was getting nothing. And I was thinking, I'm going to come up here on my second sermon and just drop a total leg before you all. I was thinking, my mom's going to be there, and I was nervous. I was nervous. And then God did something sweet for me. He reminded me what faithful preaching is. It took me referencing one of the books that we study as elders to to really get a grip on this again and get myself centered. But Tony Morita really helped me. He defines faithful preaching like this. Faithful preaching is the responsible, passionate, and authentic declaration of Christ-exalting scriptures by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of the triune God. And it was like that for the glory of the triune God. Once I stopped trying to impress you and trying to impress my mom, (laughs) the scripture opened up and I got a message. And a lot of help from my wife, so I thank you very much for helping me prepare this week. But I'm excited to get into this text. This is one of the things I'm really, really starting to love about preaching. I'm starting to love being able to spend an inordinate amount of time in a passage of Scripture. It's amazing what God does over the course of a week or two and where you're just sitting in Scripture and you're thinking about preaching this to other people. If you haven't ever done this, I'm not saying you have to preach, but if you get a chance, open up a text, pick a text, and pretend like you're going to preach it. Because even if you're only going to preach it to your own heart, I'd really challenge you, sit with the text because it's amazing to let your soul marinate in something like that. So that's just a quick challenge for you today before we jump in. 
uh, today, my text, the text we're going to be doing today, we're going to be in the 11th chapter of Mark, starting in verse 27, and we're going to go all the way to Mark 12, uh, verse 12. Now, so we're about to read the scripture, but if you don't have it on your phone or if you don't have scripture available to you, Right here in the aisles, we do have copies of the Bible. I really would like everyone to have their eyes on the, on, the, on the passage so that they can get the most out of it. This is something we're actually really, really passionate about here at Red Tree. We want everyone to soak in the text. We want everyone to have access to the text. So if you don't have a Bible at your house that you can reference, take one of these home or come talk to me after the service and I'll send you home with a quality copy of scripture, but we want you to have that, and we want you to have access to that all the time. So now that everyone is in Mark eleven twenty-seven, let's go ahead and read our passage. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to, to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did we not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. And this is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today as your people. We are eager to be changed by your word. Father, give our hearts you. Let you be the thing that impresses us. Bring us closer to you. Bring us in line with the cornerstone. Teach us about our hearts, Father. Let us understand what you want us to do today, and let us leave this place changed. Let us look to our Savior for all the good things. Father, we ask this in the name, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 
we have in this text a few things going on. To start, we have Jesus teaching in the synagogue. And his authority is suddenly challenged. In, in the synagogue, he's walking from group to group and teaching. And the chief priests, they see this and they say, what is this guy doing? He is on our turf and he is proclaiming with authority? This can't be. So they seek to embarrass him. This would have been a highly unusual thing that they did, but to go up to a teacher who is teaching with authority and to challenge him in the way that they did would have been shocking to all the people around. And they think they're being so clever. The question they ask is so clever in their minds. They think they're going to outsmart Jesus by asking, by what authority? Is it from heaven or from man? And they think they've got him trapped. But our Jesus is so much smarter. Our Jesus is so, so much smarter. He cuts right to the heart, and he does it by going straight for what counts. He goes for their pride. He asks them this great question in which he's, he's going after it, knowing that they are too prideful to disappoint a crowd and too prideful to admit he's the Savior. So when they ask him, or so when Jesus asks them, was John, the baptism of John from man or from heaven, they're stuck in their pride and their pride has trapped them. They respond in a really silly way. We do not know. Now, they did this because they did not want to have their status quo challenged. Their turf, their stake in the ground was too important. So they answer a really obvious question in a really, really silly way. And that's what we're going to spend some time doing today. We're going to go explore how Jesus challenges the status quo. And he does this even further in this parable that we're about to really dig into. So, I think this parable is really special. I think this parable has some really great implications. Christ gives us this beautiful story of a kind and patient vineyard owner, but it is really the story of the gospel. Not only is the story of the gospel, but it is the gospel told from the perspective of God. Frequently when I tell people the gospel, I'm frequently talking about it from the perspective of a sinner, what we get from God. But here, this is like, This is neat. This is God being able to show how this story of the gospel affected him or how it how it lays out. I want to I want to draw your attention to a few key notes before we jump into the gospel implications. I think these are important. First, I want to talk about the vineyard owner. I want to talk about from the beginning, the vineyard owner in this parable owns everything. He owns the wine press, he owns the ground. He is in control, and he has given this to tenants. Second, the vineyard owner actually did the planting in this story. This was one of those things I had to miss that I almost passed over, but sure enough, right there, it says he planted and at harvest time. So the vineyard owner actually put the seeds in the ground. When he gave it over to the tenants, their job was to water and to harvest. Next, He chose the tenants to let run his vineyard. This was a choice that the vineyard owner made, and he chose tenants. It's subtle, but it's in there. Next, we're given a clue about the goodness of the vineyard owner. In verse 2, when he only requests fruit, he's not asking them to go take all this fruit, haul it to market, sell it, 
at specific prices or at market prices and maybe take a loss or do any of these things. He's not asking them to monetize the fruit that they're pulling out of the ground, his fruit. Instead, he's kind. He says, I just want the fruit. This is a really good sign of a sign of the goodness of this vineyard owner. This would have been a rare way for a landowner to collect from their tenants, the actual produce and not money. It really shows what a great deal the tenants had. Next, I want to point out how incredibly patient this vineyard owner is with these people. His ambassadors, his servants are taken and are beaten. And in verse 5, it calls them many others you get a sense that he's just going through the list of all the people he cares about, trying to get them to change what's going on here. Next, the vineyard owner really wants to make the situation right. And he digs deep. Think about this. These guys are beating up your servants, and the vineyard owner says, I'm going to send my beloved son to go address the situation. He's desperate. He wants to make this work with the tenants. So he sends his beloved son, thinking, they know how good I am. I'm only asking for fruit. They know how good I am. They'll surely change their mind. I will help them make sense by sending someone I care about so much. Didn't work out well. (laughs) And lastly, when the son is killed and thrown out, the owner of the vineyard, does something that surprises me. He doesn't burn down the vineyard. He doesn't sell it. He doesn't say, you know what, no more tenants. I'm managing this thing myself. Instead, he says, I'm going to find new tenants and show my goodness all over again. I think that's really cool. Church, our God is like this vineyard owner. In the beginning, Our God existed in perfect unity and joy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God, knowing his own goodness. Knowing his own goodness. That's a weird statement, but this is how God did it. He knew how good he was, and he went ahead and did the best thing he could do. He created others to share his goodness. He made others in the likeness of himself, to share his goodness. He created a world by the infinite power of his voice. He gave over to man the creation that he had made. And then the world slipped into sin, destruction, by choosing to worship the creation and not the creator. This is the source of all of the pain that has ever been experienced. It's the long, sad, awful story of man trying to run themselves on anything other than the goodness of God. In the midst of this chaos and sin, God faithfully and lovingly kept his plan. He picked a group of people, the Jewish people, to advance his name and spread his goodness. He chose this group not because they were the best people. I love how Ezekiel explains the situation. Let's turn to Ezekiel Ezekiel 16, verses 4 through 6. It's about Yahweh through... (laughs) 
So again, Ezekiel 16.4. And as for you, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, and you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. I bring up these verses to make a point that from the beginning, God was not picking the most worthy people in the Jewish people. He describes the soon-to-be nation as a wallowing baby that was cast out. He is the one who picked them up and made them live. He was picking the people that would bring his name the most glory. Remember, that's what God is up to. From before the foundation of the world, he is choosing daughters and sons to set his affection upon and using these beloved children, including us and our fellow believers, to bring his name glory. The Jewish people, like the tenants in the parable, turn from their God and begin to ignore God's commands. They give their hearts over to idols of greed, power, lust, wealth, and corruptly use and abuse other image bearers. Again, like the good vineyard owner sending out more and more servants, our God sends countless prophets to teach the people to turn and repent and come back to God's goodness. From the beginning, from the very beginning, God has watched his ambassadors suffer for the cause of calling sinners to repentance. Think back. We saw Abel was killed for making a righteous offering. Elijah was rejected for rejecting Baal. David had spears thrown at him for just being a godly man. Jeremiah was beaten for preaching of the coming judgment. And John the Baptist got his head cut off for coming and saying and preparing the way of the Lord. Long, sad story. Finally, God does the most shocking thing the world has ever seen. The precious, only begotten Son, God himself, in human form, is sent into the world to proclaim the good news that the kingdom is near. The beloved Son is named Jesus. He teaches repentance and forgiveness of sin. He heals He casts out demons. He reconciles. Everything he does is good. He radiates love. His mere presence is the promise of goodness. We see some flock to him, and we see others flatly reject Jesus. The common theme with the rejectors, they love the status quo. They love the turf they have. They love the stake that they've put in the ground. Finally, we see Jesus crucified. The chosen people decide his fate. 
They choose to forgive a criminal over him. The Christ dies willingly to pay for the debt of the sins of the world, for the wages of sin are death. We see him nailed to a tree, a spear pierced his side, and we see the blood. A single, this is an aside, a single drop of Jesus' blood is more precious than the entire universe, and it is poured out for the, it's an awful price to pay for the sins of the world. Now we're going to break with our parable for just a moment. We know that Christ defeats death and is risen on the third day. He has dealt a crippling blow to the devil and has reset the deck. He has made us right with God for all those who believe and trust in him for forgiveness. And he is, in doing so, he did one more extraordinary thing. He has lived a perfect life and imputed his righteousness on his disciples. This means if you believe in Christ, you have kept the full law. So let's jump back to our parable. Just like the vineyard owner who turned over the vineyard to new tenants after the death of his son, God has done the same thing here. He has made the gospel available to all people, not just the Jewish people. God has let the mark of his people be belief in his son and not the family relationship to Abraham. You no longer need to fulfill the law. You only need to look to the one who has lived it perfectly. You no longer need to keep the food laws, for you can look to the one who has kept them. You no longer need circumcision. You need only look to the one who was circumcised. You no longer need to sit outside the camp because Christ endured separation for us. You don't need to clean yourself again and again. He washed you white as snow, and you don't need to repeatedly sacrifice animals as Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb. You don't need to visit a high priest because you have a great high priest in heaven. Christ did all of this for us in the most perfect way, once and for all. I love that. (laughs) You see, Christ threw open the doors and redefined the people of God. He said, come to me and be saved, anyone, not just the Jewish people. Do you believe this? My mom's here. Do you believe this? (laughs) Do you believe this is good? That we have sinned against him? Do you believe that he did this to save you from your sins? Have you accepted the sacrifice is the only thing that makes you clean before a holy God? Do you believe that he defeated death and was raised on the third day and will come to resurrect you too? If you believe this, You are like the baby in Ezekiel, one of the babies that God has found wallowing in blood and God has breathed new life into you. You are sons of God, brothers and sisters of Christ and heirs to his kingdom. Now, this is an amazing story. If you've just heard this story and you answered yes to all those questions I just asked for the first time, God has done something amazing in your heart. And I got two things to ask of you. One of them, at the end of the sermon, immediately following the sermon, we're going to have pastoral care time. 
I ask that you be bold enough to come find any one of the pastors who stand up and come talk to you about come talk to us about what you believe. There's more that we want to talk to you about. Secondly, if you just believed all those questions for the very first time, I'm asking a big favor of you, and it's a weird one. Stop listening. If you want to go hang out there for a little bit and just meditate on what God has done, it's great. If you need to just sit there, but this is hard. If you believe that for the first time, I'm asking you to check out here and come back. Now, for everyone else who hasn't been a believer for less than 10 minutes, we've got more to do here. I, I, I believe that there's something more in this text that we need to focus on. I want to focus a bit on the verse in Mark 12, 12. You read that the chief priests perceived that he had told this parable against them. See, this parable is meant to be shocking. It's supposed to make you uneasy, and you're not supposed to like it. See, brothers and sisters, I want you to consider this. Just consider that maybe it's possible that in this space, that this parable is against you. I want you to think about this a little differently. I want you to start looking at this parable again, only this time, the vineyard's your heart. See, some of you have been believers for many, many years, and I'm in, I'm in this camp. When I'm, from here on out, I'm, I'm with all of you in this place. When you first believe, God planted the word in your heart. When you first believed, he gave you a full measure of the Holy Spirit. He did amazing things in your life. He broke you of sin patterns. He taught you to love the word. He taught you to sing praises and all of the amazing things that the Spirit comes in and raptures you and does. He also made you a tenant of your heart, a steward. I have a question. Have you stewarded your heart well? Or have you become prideful in some areas? Are you possibly withholding from God some of the fruit that he has planted? Are you hunkered down in unbelief? Or are you fighting, physically fighting specific convictions of the Spirit? This is what I want you to wrestle with today, believer. Ask, is God calling me to evaluate myself? Is this parable against me? See, this parable is supposed to upset the status quo, and that's what I'm asking you to do today. Upset the status quo. Now, I know some of you, and I love all of you. And I know sometimes, I, I, I've been a person in this situation, so I know how you can, might be feeling right now. Maybe you're feeling uneasy. I want, I want to make something clear right away. I know passages like this can cause some of you to crinkle up. Some of you are already feeling really, really burdened, but I want to be crystal clear about what I'm not talking about today. I'm not talking about the child of God who suffers from habitual sin that they hate. There are a million messages to preach about that today, but this one, you get a break. If you're sitting there squirming in your seat, and you're a person who is habitually face down, begging God for forgiveness for sins that you can't help but do or are chronically struggling with, this message isn't for you today. 
or at least not that sin. If you're in a place where you come to your pastors week in, week out, or your gospel community week in, week out, seeking healing for a specific sin, what I'm talking about today isn't that. And I need to ask another favor of you. I want you to take that, whether it be habitual lust, habitual lying, habitual covetousness, habitual substance abuse, I want you to take that for today and set that over here. If it's possible, I want you to forget that sin for today. We're going to talk about something different. See, what I'm wanting to talk about today is the things that we're so hunkered down on that we haven't given over that piece of our heart to God. See, those habitual sins that you hate, God's already started to do a work in that. He's going to see that work filled to completion. What we're talking about today is the stuff where we're hunkered down. We won't even confess that it's a sin. We're looking to upset that status quo today. And this is a big task. Because what we're searching out today are total blind spots for the most part. For the most part, you don't know they exist or that you've buried yourself so far in pride that you no longer even recognize it. But I think this parable gives us a, some symptoms where we can begin to search these things out. I see three clear symptoms of a wicked heart or a place in your heart that you have not surrendered over to the authority of Christ. The first one is pride. If there's an area in your life where you feel a lot of pride, that's a giant red flag. The second, just like in the parable, where countless prophets are sent again and again and again, countless ambassadors come, one of the things we're looking for, brothers and sisters, is that nerve spot where someone comes to you and tries to talk to you about a problem and you get that feeling. You know, that, that like raw nerve feeling where you create clever answers just like the chief priest did, where you answer really clever questions or really do some evasive maneuvers to get out of what this person's coming to talk to you about. And third is a weird one, but it's a desire to put that area of your heart, put that thing in front of Jesus. And in some cases, crucify the risen Savior rather than give up that piece of your heart. Now that's heavy. I know that's heavy. And I don't think it's fair to just sit here and say, you need to do this. Because God has done this in my heart over the course of a week. And I want to share with you a little bit about what God has shown me as I've combed the depths of this and looked for these symptoms. So the first thing I want to talk to you about, an area of my heart that I still probably haven't surrendered over to God. It's my parenting. So pride. Let's look for the example of pride. I'm a pastor here at this church. If you look in Timothy, one of the qualifications is having to raise your family well. Now, some of my children have caused problems in GC, have caused problems at at gatherings, whether it be my family or with church, and it's been a problem. And I know God has sent ambassadors to me that I have used evasive maneuvers with and in some cases used and abused them to get out of dealing with that piece of my heart that I'm hunkered down in. And I'm not in a place where I can say I hate that piece of my heart yet. But I'm working on that. And we're going to talk about a cure. And in some ways, brothers and sisters, I put that piece of my heart above my risen Savior. I say to myself, 
having the veneer of being a good parent is more important than my gospel message to my gospel community. Having that veneer of being a good parent, I put before loving and serving my family well and even forgiving of sin. That's a place I'm hunkered down. The next one is my work. This is a cool one because I got to examine this from the perspective of non-believers. But at my work, I like being a smart guy. I'm a sales guy and I tend to be at the top of the pack in sales and I, that makes me feel good. I like that. It's a lot of pride wrapped up in that. But you know what? I make mistakes and I screw things up and I'm also lazy. And I can tell you my coworkers have been godly ambassadors who have come to talk to me about these issues and I've used and abused them. I've beaten them. I've even slandered them after the fact, all to keep my pride of being a good worker and having that pat on the back be part of my gig. And how did I put that before my risen Savior? How is that doing with my gospel message at work? Am I showing that I'm a broken man desperately in need of Jesus? Or am I saying, nope, I got it all together and I'm the best at what I do? Put that before my risen Savior. So my question, what's God showing you? I want you to ponder this this week. This week is going to be about upsetting the status quo. It's about turning over new areas of our heart to our risen Savior. And lastly, just identifying this stuff isn't good enough. Because we read... We read in Mark 12.10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is where we're going to end today. Brothers and sisters, we need to align with the cornerstone. We have to be made new. See, God is looking to throw out the old tenants and bring in the new ones, and he's in the business of doing that with your heart. I love in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. There is a better way, brothers and sisters, than to leave pieces of our hearts on abandoned to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we get a small glimpse of how we can cure this. We look to our Savior. We align ourselves with our Savior, and we let other people help us align with our Savior. Take my example of work. If you're in that similar situation, maybe you say to yourself, how can I be so prideful in my job when my Savior carried a cross on my behalf? How can I be so prideful when my Savior lovingly was nailed to a tree for me. Look to Jesus and be saved, brothers and sisters. Let the cross be a soothing balm you place on your heart. I love how Charles Spurgeon explains this. The doctrine of the cross can be used to slay sin, even as old warriors use their huge two-handed swords and mowed down their foes at every stroke. There is nothing like faith in the sinner's friend. 
It overcomes all evil. If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live to sin any longer, but must arouse myself to love and serve him who hath redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that slew my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? Brothers and sisters, let this be a week of combing through your hearts and upsetting the status quo and surrendering to Jesus. Let this week be that week. Let's do this in gospel communities. Let's open up old wounds and say, I messed up when you tried to talk to me about that thing. Let that be a discussion this week. Say to your spouse, I know you've been trying to talk to me about this. I know you're one of the people that God has sent to explain this thing to me or to show me how I'm not aligned with the cornerstone. Let this be a week where you say, let this change me because he died to save you. We have hope. We can be made new. And I'm going to end like that. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redtree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.